not to take credit, like I only spend 45 minutes with a person in a week. This is not work that I'm doing. This is work that I'm facilitating. They're doing the work, right? And so it's important yes. to understand that they're illuminating this light and that it's all them, right? And I'm sitting here just watching it happen. And I'm like, wow, what a privileged position to be in, to sit here and mm. be able to see healing in this person's life, like really the journey, like you see it and it's, it's beautiful. It's a lot of what I came into this work to see and to be able to witness. I'm Leila Saad, and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing changemakers and culture shapers who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Welcome, Good Ancestors, and welcome to today's episode, a Columbia University-trained psychologist, a disruptor, and a sound bath meditation healer who is teaching us how to heal intergenerational trauma. Dr. Marielle Bouquet's work centers on healing wounds of intergenerational trauma for Black, Indigenous people of color, as well as mental wellness practices and the decolonization of Eurocentric therapeutic practices, topics that we explore deeply during this conversation. Dr. Marielle also focuses on delivering healing workshops and on conducting anti-racism workshops across the U.S. in the areas of structural racism, cultural competency, implicit bias, and microaggressions, as she believes in the liberation of our minds and of oppressive systems as necessary qualities of our overall wellness. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Good Ancestor Podcast. I'm here with good ancestor, Marielle Bouquet. She is somebody who I love, I adore. And a year ago, we met in person in New York. And now fast forward a year later, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. We are recording this episode a day before election day in the United States. And it's a really tough year. It's been a really tough year for so many people for so many different reasons. And so I'm excited to speak to Marielle because I know that she's going to really provide us with some tools as well as inspiration and truth about the realities of this time and how we can move through it as our full and authentic selves. So welcome, Marielle. Thank you so much for having me, Leila. And I'm just really proud that I've just assumed a new title of Good Ancestor, and I'm yes. going to wear that proudly Yes, <laughs> from here on out. And I should have I should have actually introduced you with the other title that I'm really proud of you for getting, which I know that you're proud of yourself for getting, which is <laughs> Dr. Marielle. You were not a doctor <laughs> last time we spoke, but you were working That's hard right. towards it. I know how much work you've put into this. And I just want to celebrate you, congratulate you for this incredible work you're doing, Dr. Marielle. 
Thank you so, so much. And you actually hadn't acquired the title of best-selling author no, like worldwide, <laughs> like everywhere on this planet, basically. And I mean, like just seeing you in this journey has been, you know, something that has filled my soul. So I just, you know, I celebrate you as well, Leila. And thank you thank so you. much for, for being with me in celebration. It's just a joy to be mm. in sisterhood and in sisterhood around the things that we deserve. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know how this goes. Our very first question, <laughs> who are some of the ancestors living or transitioned familial or societal who have influenced you on your journey? I have to take a deep breath with that one. Mm. I was just calling in some ancestors this morning as I was just transitioning into this conversation. And so there's just so many people out there that are ancestors and we don't necessarily know them by name or people that motivate people like myself, people like you that are just in our spiritual world. And so I just really wanted to pay homage to them. And the first person I like to, to bring on a name is my grandmother, who is a recent ancestress as of like a year and a half ago. And her name is Tutuna. And I connect with her through my writing, you know, through in my journaling and, mm. you know, just by way of just doing breathing exercises that invite in, you know, just the wealth of her spirit and just her, her story here on earth. And so she is somebody that really speaks to me. I also, I, I look a lot like my mom who looked a lot like her mom. And so I look at my hands and they're literally my grandmother's hands. Mm -hmm. And I look at, you know, different parts of me, my physical appearance, and I resemble her in the mirror. And so I really feel like I embody her and just the nature of who she was as a someone who was a nurturer. And so she's my, my first ancestress. And there's other, there's other people. There's one who is a Dominican revolutionary who fought for the lands of the Black and poor people of the Dominican Republic when they were under a dictatorship and her name is Mama Dingo and she's someone whom I also you know treasure and then there's some names that I think are perhaps a little bit more familiar Nina Simone is my go-to every morning I kind of segue into my day with the, the words that she left in song mm. to all of us and and some current revolutionaries like Patricia Hill Collins and Angela Davis and her insurmountable work around just being able to radicalize the world. Mm. And I can go on. Yeah. <laughs> it's you. You're a living oh, ancestress that I, I treasure. I mean, there's so many, especially Black women, that have deposited into me and into the world. And I'm just so grateful for all of them. Mm. Oh, I take that in. It's beautiful. When you're talking about your grandmother, it got me thinking about my maternal grandmother, who is the ancestress in my family who often comes to me in dreams. And she hadn't come for a long time and she came a couple of days ago. So it just really touched me when you spoke of her because anytime she comes into my dreams, it's always 
a really positive sign. It's always, I think, a reminder, you know, you know who you are. I know who you are. Yeah. I'm here with you. And mm-hmm. the power of what it means to be an ancestor and what it means to know that you're connected to your ancestors is something that I just find so, so powerful. And it gets me thinking about some of the aspects of your work, which are about intergenerational healing, especially for Black Indigenous people of color. And you spoke about some of the ancestors who we may not necessarily know the names of, but who are a part of our lineage, who are a part of our DNA, our spiritual makeup, right? Mm -hmm. What is that intergenerational trauma that so many of us are carrying that we I think there's a lot that we're aware of, but I think there's also a lot that we're not aware of mm-hmm. that we carry from our ancestors. Yeah, there's so much, you know, and I think that there, something came to mind to me, you know, not too long ago, just in thought. And I was like, you know what? Some of us may think, oh man. And I, I have heard this stated and also written like on social media and whatnot, like, they didn't do the work. And so I need to do the work. Right. And so I realized that I don't see it that way. I see it so differently. I see it as an honor to be able to carry some of what was too much. Right. You know, I mean, as a human being, there is, but so much that you can actually carry and they did their part. Mm. And so I'm just in an immense honor to be able to say I'm connected to this ancestor, this ancestress in this way or that way in whatever part of my day in order to assume the weight that they've left behind because it's just very burdensome because their lives were filled with an immense amount of trauma, collective trauma and historical trauma. So when we talk about intergenerational trauma, we're talking about what happens at the intersection of what we call nature and nurture. So on the nature side, we're beginning to understand more and more through the scientific methods of neuroscience and epigenetics that there are multiple markers that become entrapped in the DNA of the person and is transmitted through the womb. And so we understand that the womb is a center for birth, but it can also be a center for trauma. And when we're talking about individuals that uh, have experienced genocide, have experienced enslavement, have experienced national terror, worldwide terror, and a host of other things that have been a marker of trauma and distress Mm. within an entire population, that that's going to be imprinted in the bodies of the individuals that experience it in their lifetime and then transmitted to the generations to come. And part of the ways that that happens is that we actually have these specific hormones that flow through our bodies, norepinephrine, cortisol, and they're stress hormones. And when they're not allowed to be brought back down whenever they're in a heightened state, when we're really stressed on an ongoing basis, this becomes a marker of basically what our genetic makeup looks like. And so if you can think about your genetic makeup being one that is high on cortisol, then in the womb, you're going to know what 
stress and lack of safety already feels like. And you're mm. going to be born into the world with that predisposition to feeling a lack of safety, to feeling trauma. And so that is more of the nature side. And would you say it's feeling it as the norm? Yes, because we don't know anything Anything else. Right. Yeah. Than that piece. Because it it gets me thinking about, you know, part of the work that we do as Black, Indigenous, people of color is reclaiming ease, joy, Mm -hmm. safety, peace. And that work is really, really hard to do. Yes. Not just because of the forces external to us that want to impede that and get in the way of that, but also Mm -hmm. from the inside out, it's really hard as well. And I wonder if this is a part of it that we're so used to being ramped up with fear and as you said, cortisol and and that, that is homeostasis. Yeah, because the body is constantly in fight or flight and that fight or flight, what I mean is that our central nervous system is actually overactivated on a continuous basis. And the part of the nervous system, which is called the parasympathetic nervous system that is supposed to come in and create that homeostatic balance and that experience of feeling like, okay, I am well, I am safe. That that part isn't necessarily being activated because there is so much overwhelm on the sympathetic side, on the fight or flight side. And so when that becomes so much of the norm and when we don't know how to elicit the mechanisms of the parasympathetic nervous system in order to create a balance for ourselves. We basically lead lives that are marked by this hyperaroused state. And that is a marker of what tends to happen in BIPOC communities mm-hmm. that are basically plagued by the pervasive inequities that we have to confront on a daily basis, in addition to the pervasive historical inequities that you know we still are contending with. So there, there's a lot that we carry with us, you know, on a day-to-day. It is a lot. And I know that this year in particular, I mean, all years, but this year for all the many reasons that we're aware of, mm-hmm. it has felt like there's been no space to take a breath. Yes. Take a breath before the next thing. I'm remembering to take one now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And many of us are are reacting to that in different ways, right? I know for myself, it has been about, uh, okay, it is not safe out there. Go inwards, go protect yourself, eat, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. trying to feel some sense of safety and shut off because it's too much. Yeah. And if for other people, it's okay, I need to engage with this so that I'm aware of what to do next. Like, then I'll know how to protect myself. First of all, how are you seeing people coping and what are you inviting them to look into as an alternative way to cope that is healthier? Yeah. And I think a part of what we're talking about here is like adaptive coping, right? Versus like what we might see as like more leaning towards non-adaptive coping and ways in which you're basically enacting escapism, right? And avoidance, which is one of the key markers of trauma. Mm. And with that, actually, you know, that kind of just ties us in also into the other piece of intergenerational trauma, which is the, the social markers of what's happening around us and environmental markers of what's happening around us that is making it so that the predisposition that we already have to trauma genetically is being then triggered and elicited in our lifetime. Mm. And so you're confronted with 
the pervasiveness of racism that has led to police brutality, that has led to people having had enough and uprisings, right? All of that, the entire cycle is a marker of stress and trauma for individuals that are black identified and allies, right? And BIPOC communities that are also vicariously experiencing this trauma with us. And so, you know, you have all of that that is already so hyper arousing. And before we even had a pandemic, before we even had this whole election process, we were already dealing with all of that, right? We were already there. Yeah. We were so there. I mean, this is what going to be like eight years now of the Black Lives Matter movement and uprising. And not to mention all the other movements before that, right? Right. This is just the new age movement, right? right. However, we were still capturing some of the, the trauma that has been left over from the other movements where we saw no reconciliation with a system that we believe works for us rather than against us. And so there's just been so much mm. that's been there that we've been carrying. And then you throw in a pandemic, right? You right. throw in a pandemic and let's not lose sight of the fact that not only is the pandemic impacting Black and Latinx people more at disproportionate rates, pervasively disproportionate rates than white counterparts. And it's also something that has elicited something that is very unnatural for us, which is to be in isolation. We're communal people. We're not meant to be in isolation. We're meant to be in community. That's who we are. And so you're literally displacing the very fabric of like who we are as people mm. and extracting that from us. So it's like literally like we're having like this existential moment maybe crisis, if you may, right? On top of the pandemic as well. About what it means to be human. Is that what you mean? Like, Exactly. Are outside of, not that we're ever separate from our identities and the experiences around them, but outside of that, as human beings, that core need to connect, to be in community with each other has been taken away. And so who yes. are we? Who are we as human beings without that? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And one of my recommendations is always for people to seek community and then conceptualizing what does community look like for you so that community can be a part of your healing system, right? And yet, even, you know, as a person that operates primarily as a therapist now, I'm, as well as many others are confronted with like, how do we create what could have been that support system in the current age, you know, because there's just so much that is there. But in terms of uh, the whole adaptive versus non-adaptive coping, what I was hoping to, to touch base on in reference to that is the fact that there are specific ways in which trauma is elicited in the body. And one of the ways, one of the symptoms, if you may, of trauma is avoidance, which means avoidance of anything that could be a potential trigger. Yeah. And we can think of that in many, many ways, right? Like an avoidance factor can actually be a black mother telling, you know, her young child, don't go into that side of the neighborhood because you might encounter police officers and I can't, you know, necessarily know like where you are or protect your, or just having the talk, right? Having the talk is an avoidance strategy that has been adaptive because we have needed to enact it in order to protect our communities. However, it doesn't take away from the fact that a very young mind has to actually make sense of this 
Right. And making sense of it can actually be very dramatic. The process of trying to make sense of it, like who am I? Why am I a target? Why do they see me this way? How long has this been going on? I mean, you literally like a young mind trying to make sense of all of that before they even have the capacity and the fluidity of actually having abstract thought, which happens like into the mid to late teens. That's a lot for a kid, right? And so if you can only imagine how adaptive versus non-adaptive functioning in the trauma sense and in the trauma lens can even be traumatic in and of itself. We're talking about layers here. I mean, I can literally have like a 10-hour conversation with you about that piece alone. It's just so immense. It really is. Yeah. And we often talk about what it's like as a parent to have those kinds of conversations with our kids, what it's like as a Black parent Mm -hmm. to have conversations with your kids about racism, anti-Blackness, and police brutality and police unsafety. And and they're seeing the news and you're having to explain to them what it means and why. But I really appreciate you explaining what it must be like for a child trying to make sense of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I remember, even though I didn't have to have the, the talk about police because of where I grew up, I did have to talk about racism and how I was seen as a Black Muslim girl. And I remember feeling confused, angry, angry at my mom for telling me this, feeling like she was lying. That can't be true. This can't be right. And then feeling my world getting smaller Mm. because it's like, okay, so what my friends can do, I can't do. Okay, so how they behave, I can't behave. I have to be different than them. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure so many of your clients that come to you, I know when I've worked with coaches, therapists, right? It's inner child Mm -hmm. stuff, but that inner child stuff, which we all have stuff around that, but that those very specific, oh, the very specific layers of it directly relating to you as a person, the color of your skin, your identity, that's what makes Mm -hmm. you unsafe. Yes. And there's nothing you could do to change it. If you can think about how disrupting that is to even like have to contend with that and have to assume a different self-perception as a result. I mean, all of it is, it's very unearthing and we are people that we're meant to be rooted. And when you unearth us with all of these experiences, like, you know, we're going to be floating at some point in time, especially when we're hit with the trifecta, right? Of all the things that are happening right now. And so I, I do believe profoundly in even some of the things that you said that you're doing. We talked about water, you know, like it's like, and I saw you take your sip of what I do have and I will take my <laughs> sip, you know. Take your sip, take your breath. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. Thank you for that. I, I sometimes I get so immersed yeah. in these kinds of conversations and I'm just, you know, I'm elated to have it with you. So I get on top of just everything that I embody as a Black woman. I'm also like <laughs> forgetting the breath because I'm so excited. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I the things that you mentioned as far as like embodying specific, very basic baseline things that we need to do for ourselves, like is is where we need to go. We need to go literally right down to the basics and remember that we need to take care of every cell in our bodies. Mm. And I know that. Even that statement is coming from a place of 
holding some privilege, right? Like there are some yeah. people in our communities that live in food deserts and don't have the capacity to actually go out and get like a vegan meal, you know, because it's actually like more nourishing or whatever, you know, like just like yeah. anything that we perceive to be the good stuff to put into your body. But whatever ways are people like in Flint who actually don't have access to the Clean safe water. Mm-hmm. water, yeah, that we have, right? More expediently. But if there is a way that one thing I do know, we as people are incredibly creative and resourceful. So we will make a way, right? And so in whatever way that we can actually create a system of self-care around us, down to the very basics, that is what I hope that we can, you know, start doing as a part of not just a self-care practice, but literally a ritual, like an ancestral ritual, like saying, I'm sipping this water because this is my birthright. This is what my ancestors wanted for me, for me to have this nourishment, this very basic life nourishment going into my body. And that means something to me. And so I'm going to be very intentional about doing that for myself. These are really, really important key aspects of how we can take care of ourselves and take care of each other. Like you reminded me, take a sip of water. You're taking care of me and I appreciate you. about, you know, first of all, in my own journey and where I am right now in my life, you know, this year uh, discovered I had some underlying health issues that I was unaware of. And it became very clear to me very, very quickly as soon as I did become aware that you neglected yourself because you were so focused on your work you were so focused Mm -hmm. on your mission and your work that you neglected the basics. You know, there's many reasons why health issues occur, but I know that this is one of them for me because I know the level of work that I do. I know what I, you know, the energy that I put into things, the time that I put into it. And it became very clear to me, you need to go back to the basics, water, food, movement, sleep, Mm -hmm. right? Breath, Mm -hmm. meditation, like those things have become my anchor. Like, my non-negotiable and absolutely spot on what you said about the privilege of being able to have access to certain things, have time for certain things. And I am extremely privileged in that regard. But at the same time, yes, ancestrally, it is our right. It is our right to sleep. It is our right to eat. It is our right to have clean water. It is our right to rest. And I think until that happened for me, I wasn't evoking that right. <laughs> I was mm. in the mode of, I have to be out there doing something. And these basics are a luxury that I can't afford. And now I've realized it's actually the opposite. These are necessities that I can't afford not to be focused on. Yes. Oh, that's so powerful. Yeah. But I know so many. Black people, whether they are doing social justice work or not, are in triage mode, right? But just trying to get through the day. Yes. How do we switch, right, from that sympathetic to parasympathetic to get ourselves to like say, I need to drink water, I need sleep, right? I need to stop, I need to disconnect, or whatever it is. Yeah. I think the first point is like awareness, right? Like, Some of us 
and I, I have to admit, like, even when I was doing more like boots on the ground work, right, I felt that I needed to feel the intensity of what was happening around me. And if I wasn't, I would feel guilty. Like my ancestors did so much more, you know, with so much less. So I have to be out here, like actually producing. And until the crowd parts, I'm not leaving. Right. And it was just this like very toxic mindset, to be honest. Right. And it's in part, you know, one that is driven by lack of understanding of what our ancestors truly want. Right. They want us to uprise. They want us to be out there. Right. But they want us to titrate in and out. Right. You take this shift. I take this shift. I'll go take a rest. I'll go take care of myself, check in with my family, have a moment, take a breath, eat, nourish myself. And then I'll check in with you if it's time for me to come back. Like there's ways that we've systematized in the past. And I think that that's a part of what we need to do now is systematize. And in the spirit of systematizing, one thing that I recommend and that I do for myself is I have a calendar that's filled with reminders, right? And these reminders are for nourishment, for the embodiment of a person that I am proud to be, which is someone that can hold this work and all that it brings and how radical it needs to be and how profound it needs to be and hold space for other humans to be able to outpour while also holding space for myself and for that space to be uninhibited. And to have like very gentle moments, moments when I'm literally talking to my plants and that's all I'm doing or singing to them or just like I was doing last night, just rubbing my hands and just admiring them for being the reflection of my grandmother. Mm. And just these very soft and gentle moments that we need to award ourselves on top of the basic needs that need to be there as well. Yeah. Right. And so I oftentimes provide myself with gentle reminders and they're, they're soft and kind and filled with compassion and like have the kind of tone that I need for myself to hear from myself, to remind me to do the things that are going to be nourishing. And, and so I would invite anybody to do that. Right. And even like put your name on there, right. Like some of my reminders are like Marielle, you know, I know that there's a lot to do in the world, but it's time for you to start your meditation as you segue into going to sleep. And so that's mm. just a gentle way of just telling myself just a gentle nudge where I'm like, you know, instead of go to sleep or sleep time, or, you know, like something that's a right. little bit more personalized. <laughs> Switch off now, right. <laughs> right. Turn off your phone, girl. <laughs> but yeah, you know, those reminders can be helpful. And, you know, I would even invite because I feel like we have to listen as we climb and this is communal work as well. So if you want to add to that invite, like someone that you love, or maybe just like give them a gentle nudge yeah. of just a reminder of something that is important for them to do to keep mm. themselves alive and well, because they are an integral part of the collective, then that's something that perhaps we can add on to our reminders as well. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. Those small acts mean so much both for ourselves and for other people. And in this time of so much pain and trauma and lack of light, there's a lot of darkness right now. It feels imperative 
to create our own light, to nurture our own light, to not wait for it to come from outside of ourselves, but to really, like I'm thinking about what you said about just rubbing your hands and taking that moment to just be really present with yourself. Yeah. It's just so beautiful. And yet we take so much for granted, right? We take so much, we take our hands for granted, our breath. We take our, the fact that we can sleep, that we can eat. We take so much of it for granted. And so I really, I really want our listeners to hear about the importance of, it's like, I was saying to somebody earlier, I said, I feel like we're really having to be warriors, but not warriors in a like defended kind of really armored kind of way, but really like the discipline and the devotion and the focus, right. And the intention of I have to take exquisite care of myself and I have to be super intentional about how I'm showing up in the world. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And remember, always remember about how that intention comes along with other people. Recently, I was invited into a tea ritual with a good friend. We're apart by the States, like someplace else in the US. And, And so I was like, oh my goodness, like I just do my tea ritual here by myself. The tea ritual in community, like this is everything. And it was just like this beautiful way of love just flowing through a sisterhood that just like filled me immensely. And I'm like, I want to do that with all the people that I consider my sisters. Like I just want to book my whole schedule with just things, like, you know, just a moment to affirm each other. Like the works, you know, just everything that we need. And this is a part of the fight too, right? Yes. That tea ritual and that tea and us talking about like the actual herbs that we have and yes, how it's feeding our bodies and learning from each other. Like that whole process, that's the fight. That's also the fight, right? Like that's not me and white supremacy fight because me and white supremacy is everything, but <laughs> it is very much, <laughs> it's very much a part of the work. And it makes me think about you because I remember even when you had, you know, the challenge going up prior to, you know, it's segueing into the workbook and then the book, I just remember thinking of you like, whoa, is she okay? Like, I just remember that. And I didn't really, I didn't really I had, know I, you then. So I, I had I, a lot of strangers like, are you okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think if more of us maybe take a step in the direction of like beyond the, are you okay? But I want to invite you into a space of, of healing and wellness and just stillness. Yeah. I think that it can help us all have more of those moments in order to help us to sustain through the long journey of this yeah. fight, right? And so I think this is probably my, my pledge to invite you at some point whenever our schedules coordinate because yeah. I know you're on the other side of the world, but we have to have our, our routine or something that I'm there, you know, Marielle, you know. whatever you invite me yes. to, I am there. <laughs> I was scrolling back in preparation for this conversation. I was scrolling back on our DM messages. Cause I was like, when did I meet Marielle again? And then I got to the top and I was like, Oh, wow. I remember she had sent me a message when I think after I'd done the challenge, And I hadn't seen it because I was receiving so many messages and we weren't connected. So it went to my other inbox. But then months Mm -hmm. later, I was trying to find a Black therapist. 
and I stumbled across a resource that you had put together. And I was like, this is incredible. This is amazing. I needed this. And I go to reach out to you to thank you. And I see your message there, checking (laughs) in on me, letting me know the impact that my work had had on you. And it was just this incredible moment because I was I was in a place where I was like, I really need therapy. I'd never had therapy before. I really felt like I needed support, but I was very clear that I wanted to work with a Black woman therapist. And you were so kind and so gracious and so helpful in my moment of, you don't know me, but I feel very vulnerable because this is support that I need. And I just really want to thank you for that because- you kind of set a standard for me, I felt like, of care. Mm. Wow, that means so much. My yeah. goodness, thank you so much for reflecting that to me and, and also for just trusting me, you know, with that piece of your journey. I felt very honored that you had reached out to me. I was like, this is amazing. Like, you know, <laughs> to be able to deposit back onto you in any way, I'm like, I'm all about it, you know? So that interaction meant a lot and it was, it catapulted, you know, us into a sisterhood that I'm, I'm just really holding to my heart. And I, I manifested that by the way, I was like, I feel like we're kindred spirits. We're going to connect at some point. You know, I remember, I think one of the messages I had sent you, I was, you know, in your neck of the woods and it was actually, I was only there for about six hours on a layover. Right. But I just kept looking out and I was like, this is where Layla lives. You were in Doha, right? Like, you were passing I was in Doha, right. yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that. I was like, this is amazing. Yeah, because, you know, you, you hear places that you've never visited and how they, the people that it embodies. And I, I just never really, I even had to step outside of the airport just to take in the air and to feel like connected to a part of the world where I feel like sisterhood lives here, but mm. I actually have never experienced it. And just, you know, taking in the elements and everything uh, just to mm. have a full experience. But I just remember that time as something that I felt was really sacred. And I'm, I felt like I was manifesting our, our sisterhood at that point in time. <laughs> I think and you just, definitely it brought did. me back to that place. Yeah, <laughs> You definitely did. Yeah. So when we first wanted to record this episode with you, it turned out that it was right at the beginning of COVID. It hadn't been planned that way. It just, that's when we had booked the session and then the pandemic had hit. And I know that we had to postpone because as somebody who is a therapist and works in the hospital, you know, there was a lot of people going through crises, right? Yeah. How was that time for you? And as we continue to be in the same energy, what are you seeing or what are you wanting white therapists in particular to know about the level of care that black and brown people are requiring, have always required, but continue to require in this time? Yes. Thank you for asking that. In in reference to how it was for me, it was a lot. The thing about corporate health, right, is that you're in these massive systems and when you have a conscious eye into what it produces for the people and the quality that you know it should produce for the people it creates a constant state of yeah. you know feeling kind of out of sorts right and so i had like this 
keen eye into every policy, every change, every everything that we were eliciting so that people were not being left out, right? Because it's very easy to be in these like elite institutions and to enact these, these kinds of policies that you believe are of service, but are actually depleting the quality of care. And so at that point in time, I, I felt like I was I heightened my sense of responsibility to my mm. community. And it was it was a lot but worth it. And it continues to be because we continue to have a lot of things, you know, surface through the months. However, for white clinicians and I think that what white clinicians need to know above all else is that BIPOC individuals deserve the quality of care that they are requesting. And in addition to that, they need to do the inner work in order to provide quality of care to the standard of what we deserve. That inner work is so important. It's left behind by very many people in the therapeutic world. And it causes a lot of harm, a lot of harm. I've seen it firsthand. I teach at the university and I hold my students accountable for what they bring to the table. I hold them accountable for yes. their whiteness and what their whiteness mm-hmm. produces as far as inequities, lack of quality of care and further trauma upon yeah. the people that they serve. And I make it my business as an educator to make sure that as best as I can, I'm eradicating every part of what they've come in with as far as assumptions about the kind of care that they can provide and the kind of care that they should be providing. And what are you seeing are the gaps between what is being requested or what should be the standard and what is actually mm-hmm. being given? Like where are those maybe two or three major gaps that you're seeing happen again and again and again? Yeah, well, and this is within multiple systems. And I also, in the educator role and supervisory role, you know, I'm supervising people that are kind of across New York and in different systems. So I get to see, you know, all different systems in New York from a different lens. Mm. Part of the commonality of what I'm seeing and what I have seen in the past, just even in my own training, is that um, there is this this way that people come in and believe that they can just impose like these old therapeutic methods that don't integrate cultural fluency and language fluency into the work and that it's going to land the same way, which leads to attrition rates, which leads to people not believing in therapy, dropping out and feeling like they have no other recourse or they have to you know, assume different resources. And that's on us, we're failing. We're failing our people, right? white individuals are failing our people. And Mm. that's one piece of it. Another piece is the ways in which, especially during the pandemic, I've seen the lack of access being heightened and there being specific requisites for technology, for example, that actually makes it so that individuals that fall within the strata of working class or lower class and don't have the means to have a smartphone or the means to actually be able to to have a full platform by which they can actually see their provider, that these people actually don't get the same level of service as someone that has that access and those means might have. And Mm. so 
we're seeing the very, there are people that have been working with their providers for months and don't even know what their providers look like or have never even seen them even through video. Don't have no idea who this person, what they resemble. No idea. I mean, I'm just thinking about how this work requires a deep level of trust and vulnerability and opening yourself up. How can you do that with somebody you've never seen? Yeah. And I mean, the list goes on and on around, first of all, trust is something that a white clinician needs to earn the trust of a BIPOC. That's right. Client, right? And even more so, just recently, I had a white clinician mention to me that they feel less connected to a specific client who is of the Black diaspora because they disclose less about their lives to the white clinician. And I'm like, let's get into you. What is it about you and your whiteness that is perpetuating this kind of dynamic? And instead of like actually placing the onus on the client to disclose more to you, that's right. What kind of environment are you creating that is making it so that this person doesn't feel like in the one place where they ought to be vulnerable and be fully expressive, they cannot do that. Right. And also like, you know, in, in terms of language barriers, I mean, like New York is incredibly diverse, right? And the world is very diverse and we have so many languages that are represented. And in some places we have clinicians actually providing services through interpreters. Like, can you imagine what that might feel like as a person that's like on the line with your therapist and you have to wait for the interpreter to actually make the interpretation. And that's if they can actually like interpret adequately the emotional experience, the verbal right, right. recollection of your experiences. Like it's so disruptive. And that is like all of these things, in addition to, I can go on, you know, but all of these things are like some of the markers of like what lower quality of care is looking like, especially yeah. within the pandemic, but this was there before. It's just that it's it's being more pronounced and just highlighted more right. in this now electronic dynamic uh, transmission of services that we have going on. Have you seen a shift happening? <laughs> These are questions that I get usually from white interviewers, but <laughs> I am genuinely curious because I'm not in the world of, of therapy and, and mental health. Are you seeing a shift and opening for clinicians and other professionals willing to do the inner work of anti-racism that is required in order to be able to bridge those gaps? It's very slight. I still don't know if I see something that I feel isn't at the superficial level and will subside Mm -hmm. when we see things settle down a bit. Yeah, That's real. Yeah. That's real. Cause that's how I feel when I'm asked that question. You know, I often say it's hard to tell. We're just, we're still in it. Yeah. We won't really know until we see the results of it a few years from now. Like what is the outcome? Was there sustained change or was it just in the moment? Because everyone was talking about it in the moment. Mm-hmm. As we continue to look at decolonizing therapy, And particularly, you work around decolonizing Eurocentric models of therapy. What are some of those methods of healing that are sort of 
like, just do this. This will help you heal. Like, what are some of those methods that you're seeing, which are just actually aggravating the problem and causing people to shut down rather than causing them to open up? Yeah. I mean, I think we have like these very specific ways. And it's so funny because like right in front of me, I actually have some of the manuals also that I've been trained around prior to engaging in decolonizing even the very methods that I've been trained in. Right. Yes. Well, you gotta, you gotta learn them to dismantle them, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> you sure do. You sure do. And so I'm very intentional because I, I would find that gap. I'd be like, nope, uh-huh. that doesn't work with us. Y'all got to fix that. But, um, you know, there are multiple ways in which the more white world of therapy has believed that they can come in with this text that is, it has specific ways of aligning the, the therapeutic space and engaging with the person that is very disconnected and distanced and has a, a very rigid hierarchical relationship between clinician and client that doesn't seek out the wealth of knowledge that already exists in that person that they're bringing in, that is the wealth of knowledge that you're utilizing as the tool and the mechanism for their own healing, right? But instead, mm-hmm. you know, these individuals believe that they're coming in with this wealth of knowledge and, and know-how as to how to, quote-unquote, fix a person. Fix you, right, right. Right. And a part of the work has to do with, one, centralizing the knowledge base in the community. The community has the tools and the resources, and we have had them for centuries upon centuries. And so it's me really gathering what has worked before therapy even existed, right? We have something that has kept us alive, surviving, thriving, despite it all. And can we look to those things and find a way to integrate them into the work And even if it means that we have to dismantle the work down to cellular form, you know, then we have to do that. And in many ways, what needs to happen is that you just work from the person and build up the therapy, right? Rather than like take the therapy and plant it on the person. Like this is what, you know, prolonged exposure trauma work looks like. And this is what we're going to do. And I'm just going to read from this manual and feel like a robot to you, right? Rather than being able to have a conversation with you and have that conversation have layers and intergenerational strata and things that can really be profound in meaning making for you that can also be profound in healing making for you. And so it's it's a lot about going back into the community and into the person mm. or maybe into the community by way of the person, right? In order to extract value and healing mechanisms and utilize that for the sake of benefiting this very person, which is very antithetical to the ways that we have actually even been scholars in this world. I myself, you know, I'm not in the more scholarly kind of research world. It's not necessarily um, my forte at this very point in time, but but even in that world, you know, there is very, a lot of like extraction from the community and then promoting what you've learned as a researcher amongst your colleagues in a very peer-reviewed format, right? And never really kind of depositing back. What does the community know about what you've researched and what you've been able to find out 
you know, about what works in terms of a healing method for them. Have they any idea that the participants get a copy of your manuscript? No, right. you know, and so like, there isn't that, you know, depositing back. And so we as clinicians have to do the depositing back in whatever way we have been able to understand looks and feels right within that communal lens and that historical lens and that intergenerational lens. So it's about like going outside of what we know, going into spirituality and being able to dive into how a person's spirit and soul actually is challenged or fractured because of the very mechanisms that have imposed trauma upon them rather than a very like unilateral and cookie cutter way of doing therapy, which does not work for our people. And I think is probably one of the larger contributors to our people not feeling safe in therapy. Mm, I really felt that. And I think one of the many reasons why I resonate so deeply with you and the way that you show up in the world is that you have a very spiritual, soulful approach to your work that is very rooted and, you know, it's like, yes, you're the PhD, like you are Dr. Mariel and very committed to these ancestral and spiritual methods of healing as well, which at least I know in my family are huge. They are the first port of call, right? Yes. That's where we go to when, when something is wrong at whatever layer it is, whether it's a physical you know, something's physically wrong or it's a spiritual, emotional one. Are you seeing that people are connecting to their spirituality in a deeper way as a way of healthy, adaptive behavior? Yes. And it makes me so happy. That, like, when you ask that question, I just smile so hard because it's, you know, just this morning, I actually had a session and I was just, so elated and so in awe and just having to reflect this back. I tell you, there's so much humility that a person like myself accumulates along the way of doing this work when you can actually see your people doing the spiritual work to emancipate themselves. It's just so beautiful. And, and to do that, like, you know, as I was speaking to my client, like, I want you to be a mini therapist. Like I want you to embody these practices and know them inside and out, right? There's no mystery here, right? Like, you know what I know, mm. right? I love that. I yeah. love that so much <laughs> because it takes that power hierarchy yeah. right out, yep. right? As it should, yeah. Yes, and you become a, a collaborator with them leading yeah. in their healing work. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, when you see it, I had to take a step back and I was like, oh goodness, don't tear up because <laughs> I was just like having a moment, particularly when, you know, when this happens with black women, I have just a soft spot in my heart uh, for yeah. serving, you know, black women. And so it, when I see the transformation, it's a lot, it's a lot to, to take in. And sometimes I'll need a break after that session because there's just so much that's happening intergenerationally, ancestrally, and through the lineage that connects us that is creating liberation for this person. And there's pride, there's joy, you know, there's even like grief. I mean, there's so much that's happening inside of me at that moment when I'm literally seeing this person illuminate in front of me. Yeah. And not to say credit, like 
I only spend 45 minutes with a person in a week. This is not work that I'm doing. This is work that I'm facilitating. They're doing the work, right? And so it's important to understand that they're illuminating this light and that it's all them, right? And I'm sitting here just watching it happen. And I'm like, wow, what a privileged position to be in, to sit here and Mm. be able to see healing in this person's life, like really the journey, like you see it and it's, it's beautiful. It's a lot of what I came into this work to see and to be able to witness. That's really beautiful. I think of like indigenous or African or ancestral rituals as technologies. And it's the flip of the story that we've been told about who we are, which is we were uncivilized and they came to civilize us. You know, we had Mm -hmm. these very civilized technologies for building, creating, healing, you know, all of these things for our listeners specifically, and especially our black and brown indigenous listeners. What are some of those technologies that you want to, as we take the magic away, we take the mystery away, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe they don't have access to a therapist or they're not ready for therapy yet. What are Mm -hmm. some of those technologies that they have access to that they can begin to use? Uh, there's so many, but I'll just speak to what comes to mind, like top of mind. Okay. Our ancestors knew the power of sound and the power of vibrations, right? And the fact that literally when you had these like circles and you had drums beating within the circle and people, their hearts were like, they were palpating to the sound of the drums. And it was just like this beautiful, well-nuanced, like collective vibration that everybody was in and that that was a way even you know in moments when when people were creating circles around death and loss that this was a way to formalize healing among the collective yeah and that we understood that sound was at the at the center of it so i've very much taken to sound these days as a way to to balance myself internally and and to think about also like just how sound flows and vibrates within us like it creates a response from the body and we've actually we we know about this from a parasympathetic perspective even that even humming and the sound of humming Mm. can actually create vibrations that can actually elicit the parasympathetic nervous system to come in and calm the sympathetic nervous system so it's actually like something that although we don't need science to back it up right like we don't need the ivory tower to corroborate, you know, what, what we've known for centuries, but it's important to, to note that at least they're catching up, right? Like they're yeah. <laughs> saying no now, <laughs> like we've been telling y'all, but okay. <laughs> right. Exactly. But it's, it's beautiful, you know, that that's the case. So sound baths are definitely a way that people can Google sound baths and listen to them on YouTube. They're all over, you know, Instagram as well and other social media platforms that are free, you know, and I think that Mm. that's a way in which, you know, people can elicit sound vibrations and, and really get into that for 10, 15, 20 minutes to be able to balance themselves out and just kind of listen to the vibrations and feel them. So that's one piece. Another piece, and I have to give like credit to my parents because for much of my life, they have been feeding us all of these herbs 
that we have just like, you know, when we were younger, we would roll our eyes like, oh, that does not taste good. Or, you know, why, you know, these teas, my mom's a big tea person and she's always made teas and they, for some reason, always work for whatever it is that the tea is for. But (laughs) we never, we never gave it, you know, it's due respect, right? Like she was taking what her mother had taught her and so on and so forth, right? And providing her daughters with that very same wisdom. And so whenever I make my teas, I make it with the understanding that this is coming from a place of ancestral wisdom and and that it makes it a ritual for me, right? But the fact that there are teas out there that can actually be all depending on, you know, what your body is able to, to take and contain, but that can be helpful and soothing and just the tea itself or the making of the tea itself can be something that can be helpful and soothing. And even thinking about the fact that we have had rituals in our communities also for centuries, right? And that these rituals have been around food and drink, Mm. you know, and that we're basically just creating a modernized version of that, you know, within our own kitchen or space. And if you can just reflect upon that, I think that that can bring about a different sense of what it is that you're doing rather than just going in the kitchen and quickly making, you know, a tea, you're really bringing in everything that comes with it. And even more mindfully, right, to get into mindfulness, which is also a practice that is free and prominent and out there, which is just the practice of being present, right? It's not much more than that. It's just, we understand that high levels of distress can be situated in the past, like in the what ifs of the past, and high levels of stress can be elicited in the future is the what is of the future, high worry and all of that, right? But if we can stay present centered and mindful in, in our present state, that can be something that can be really helpful and healing. So in any practice that you engage in, being able to tune everything else out and just really focus in, right? Even if it's a, a practice around food or maybe those very herbs, right? just looking at them and just thinking of all the hands that has to touch those herbs just to make it to you in this very industrialized world that we're in, right? Like someone yeah. actually was somewhere planting. Planting, hmm Yeah, and just like tending, tending to the roots and then just seeing it grow and then picking it and drying it and packaging it. There's so many people that were part of that process just so you could have this moment. So if you could just be mindful of all of that and just stay present in your mindfulness around that. And as you sit, maybe like have a, a moment of gratitude, you know, for all the people that, that were a part of that process and journey for you to have this moment is something that can be really helpful. Hmm. I mean, there's so much, my goodness. Well, these are really helpful. And I smiled when you talked about sound because one of the hobbies that my kids and I started during quarantine is playing guitar. So we started guitar lessons. And the reason why I wanted to do it for me, why I decided to join them, because I'd signed them up. And then a week later, I was like, you know what, I'm going to sign up too. Um, (laughs) Never played an instrument in my life. Do not come from a musical family. My youngest brother is a DJ and like a record producer. But other than that, Mm -hmm. we don't play instruments. 
But the reason I wanted to play was because as I was listening to them strum, I was like, this is deeply relaxing. Mm. And I want one that I can strum <laughs> for mm-hmm. me because yeah. of how it's making me feel inside of my body. And so I yes. actually use it. I actually use it as a self-regulation tool. It's what I do if, you know, I'm having a bad day, go play my guitar, mm-hmm. right? We finished this call and I need to wind down before bed because it's nighttime here. Go play my guitar, right? And it's the sound. It's the, it's me being connected to it. And also the different neural pathways and things that are stimulated as I'm learning different chords and things of that nature. But it, it takes me outside of myself and mm-hmm. brings me into myself at the same yeah. time in a yeah. really... Yeah, just in a really beautiful and relaxing way. So I was like, Uh yes, sound. (laughs) Yes, I'm so glad you have that. I'm so, so glad. That makes me so happy to hear. (laughs) You know, and I'm so glad that you mentioned neural pathways because like it's important for us to be mindful of the fact that regardless of what our past and our present has created in us as far as unrest, that we have the capacity through the breath, the humming, you know, sound meditations or sound vibrations many of these very basic mechanisms of healing we have a way to as we know it now to elicit some sort of reversal of that hyper aroused state and so you know it's not just for the moment to get you through the moment but the fact that it actually is yeah restructuring the very structures of your brain and your nervous system that have had to carry that weight of that trauma and have actually been enacting a hyper aroused state for a very long time. So yeah, there's some value there. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So, I mean, first of all, I could talk to you forever. I'm like, how's the time just flown by? This has been like <laughs> one of the most fascinating conversations. And I, and I so want our listeners to be able to get from this, like, what do I do in this time that we're in? And in particular, I'm thinking about how do we honor the very real and very valid anger and grief that we have and equally hold space for hope and for faith and for change and be able to call on our resilience. And, you know, I talked about we're in a very dark time. Like how do we find that light within and and keep nurturing it while not bypassing the very real anger and grief? Yeah. I think honoring when it needs to be expressed. I think that the world that asks us to compartmentalize our anger and Mm. our grief already. And so whenever it shows up, give it space, right? Um, Sometimes it's hard for us to acknowledge that it's shown up because it can show up in different ways and maybe in a displaced way, or it can look very different than what the prototype of grief may be or what you think it may be. But if there's something stirring up inside of you that elicits some level of discomfort and you know, okay, something's different, which may be a perceived lack of safety that could be very real, right? Then it might be a moment to take a step in the direction of going into yourself and honoring the rage and letting it be. Several weeks ago, I had to give myself two full days of just just being. I wrote so much, you know, in my journal and just like had moments of 
tearfulness. I had moments of having to read back to the words of ancestors. I had moments where I literally just vegged out in front of the television. And I said, I'm not engaging the world. And it was a place where I needed to be in order to honor the grief that is existing in me as a result of what's happening to our people. And, And then I could, because I gave myself that moment, unhindered moment of just being in my own rage, then I could go out and be able to be of service to other people or just be in community with other people within a more sound state of mind where I can, not more sound, but like in a state of mind where my my rage has, you know, had its moment. And then I can be there for their rage and their expressions of sadness and grief. And I can pass that forward, you know, just hold space and hold community. That's what matters to me in terms of my own holding of my own space also to just, you know, be there for others. But I think whatever your journey is calling you to do, you know, what matters is that your grief and your rage have a place. And I, if you need to find a way to express it in whatever way feels right to you, then do so. Sometimes it's through writing. Sometimes we may need to have a moment where we're, thinking, you know, Solange's mad and it's, you know, we're just like from the top of our lungs or some other song that just like affirms the righteous rage that is within us. And then when we get back into the elements out there and we, you know, we have to then go back in from a place of hope, I would say just, just look back, right? Look back to the people that held on to hope and what they were able to do. And the fact that, you know, we're not going to solve everything in our lifetime, but there is work to be done. And whatever little bit that you can deposit into this world in order to make it a place where we can exist in collective humanity, then do that part and hold yourself accountable for that part and hold on to hope for the part that you can deposit and then let the world do the rest. That's beautiful. Thank you, Marielle. That is so beautiful. This has really been a privilege and an honor. And and I just want to say, when the pandemic began, one of my early thoughts was, wow, therapists are going to be really inundated this year. And I hope that they have support. And in the same way that they are holding space for us, I hope that somebody's holding space for them. And I just want to say thank you for modeling how to show up for yourself first and foremost, because that is the only way for you to be in the world with us consistently sharing this wisdom is for you to take care of you first. And so I just want to say that first, thank you for being a model for that. And then also thank you for continuing to be a disruptor, somebody who shows up for her people unapologetically. Yeah. And is giving us the tools that we need, the wisdom that we need with no hoops to jump through or magic trick to trick us. Just, this is it. Mm -hmm. And I'm with you, you know, and I feel that so deeply with you. I feel that you show up in that way and it's so beautiful and it's so needed. And I just, I'm just so happy that you exist in the world. Oh, Layla, thank you. And I am just like, I couldn't exist in an apologetic way and in an intentional way if I didn't have, you know, community that embodied people like you. I feel like mm-hmm. I feed off your energy and, you know, what you deposit 
onto this world and onto me and that keeps me going and so just thank you for existing in my lifetime I'm just I'm grateful yeah. that we get to be ancestors together during the same me too talk yeah. about a squad right <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> we got you covered you know <laughs> absolutely yeah. oh thank you my love yeah our thank final you. question before we sign off what does it mean to you to be a good ancestor it means to to look into the wounds of my people and to declare intergenerational healing upon their lives and the lives of us all. Um, and that means either showing up, it means bringing in a level of intention and bringing in, you know, just pure love for our people. I think we, we forget that this work can be produced from a place of love. And I, I like mm. to believe that I, I come in with radical love for my people and I, I place that in, in the work. And so it means to show up in that way, to show up from a place of love, to show up from the position of being a collaborator, a healer, and to find ways to shed some of the weight that has been imposed upon us. So I think that's my way. And that's a beautiful way. And you're doing it. And thank you so much for doing it. <laughs> thank you for allowing me, you know, a space to, to talk about it. This has been so filling. Mm, for me too, my love, for me too. Thank you. This is Leila Saad, and you've been listening to Good Ancestor Podcast. I hope this episode has helped you find deeper answers on what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to have you join the Good Ancestor podcast family over on Patreon, where subscribers get early access to new episodes, patron-only content and discussions, and special bonuses. Join us now at patreon.com forward slash Good Ancestor podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being a Good Ancestor.